Sometimes a promise changes everything. Even when your circumstances haven't yet changed, somehow the hope stirred by a simple promise can make all the difference in your outlook on your struggles, in your ability to carry on in the midst of them. Indeed, a promise can be an act of grace more profound than you could imagine. And a promise is at the heart of our passage today in chapter 3 of Ruth. I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. And the hopeful expectation that that promise breathes into the lives of two beleaguered and downtrodden saints of God. Here's the story so far in the book of Ruth. Naomi, a Hebrew woman whose husband and two sons died while their family sojourned in the pagan country of Moab, has returned to Judah, along with her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, who clung to her in covenant devotion and uh, became a follower of Yahweh in doing so. And they returned at the beginning of harvest season, and Ruth diligently took up the task of gleaning barley in someone's field. And the Lord providentially led her to the part of the field belonging to a guy named Boaz, who it just so happens is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. A couple months have now passed, as the end of chapter 2 in verse 23 told us that uh, Ruth remained with Naomi and continued gleaning in the field until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. So that would be the fast-forward montage in the movie version of, of the book of Ruth, right? You'd see the gleaning in the field and the, the tiredness and Boaz looking out over the field and seeing her to some cute music, right? And a couple of months passes. And so now, chapter 3, the first five verses, Naomi introduces a risky plan. Let's read the first five verses and find what Naomi has in mind. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you, you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down... Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Now, Naomi sounds to us like a busybody here, doesn't she? A little bit like the, you know, the, the aging mother who pesters her daughter, When are you going to get married and give me grandbabies? You know, so Naomi is sort of meddling here, it seems. All right, it's time. For somebody to put some of these pieces together, a plan needs to be made. And so she has her plan. But her true interest, I believe, is in Ruth's well-being and future security. And she said, should I not seek rest for you? In other words, should I not be concerned with your safety and provision? It's the same thing that she meant back in chapter 1, verse 9, when she said to both of her daughters-in-law back in Moab, 
May the Lord grant that you each find rest in the house of her husband. Right? That rest is the security and the legacy and the provision that comes when a woman marries a man. So the man becomes the sort of source of security and provision and shelter for that woman, more so as we've acknowledged in uh, this Hebrew culture of that day than in our own. And so the the marriage of a woman and the the men in her life were very important for that sense of security and and provision and her safety and well-being. And so we see Naomi's maneuvering, I think, in a charitable way is clearly out of legitimate concern for Ruth. And so she comes up with this plan, and she tells Ruth, all right, uh, get up and wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, right? Sounds a little bit like get dolled up and go and try to impress this fella. I don't think it's that necessarily. I think uh, what, what may be happening here is that Ruth has probably been wearing the sort of ritual garb of mourning, right? Because her husband fairly recently passed away. And then they return from Moab to Judah. And so perhaps she's been wearing clothing that indicates publicly that she is in a period of of grieving and of mourning for a lost husband. And so uh, perhaps when she says, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your cloak, maybe she's saying to Ruth here, it's time to put aside that time of mourning. It's time to remove the public markers that you are a sad woman who's mourning the loss of a husband and it's time to in a sense move on that may be what Naomi is sort of communicating here and it could be that maybe the reason that Boaz hasn't made any pursuit of Ruth to this point over these couple of months that she's been gleaning in the field uh, it could be out of respect for her mourning. So if Ruth has been wearing clothing indicating that she's in a period of mourning, then it probably would have been insensitive of Boaz to make some advance at her. So for all he knows, she's not interested. She's okay. Maybe he's just sort of minding his space and biding his time. We don't know. But at any rate, uh, Ruth is washed and dressed up here uh, to signal that her time of mourning is over. I don't think we should suspect any sort of foul play or anything uh, untoward or immoral being done. I think Naomi's motives are clearly good. She is seeking the security and the welfare of her daughter-in-law. But the praiseworthiness of her plan is a little bit more ambiguous. And the narrator doesn't tell us exactly what we should think about Naomi's plan. Uh, It's certainly a risky plan. It would be risky for Ruth to go out alone at night. The narrator of the book has already mentioned twice the prospect of Ruth being taken advantage of, and both of those times in broad daylight. In chapter 2, verse 9, Boaz said to Ruth, I have commanded my young men not to touch you. And at the end of chapter 2, verse 22, Naomi had said something similar to Ruth. It's good that you stay among the young women in his field, otherwise you might be assaulted, right? So, I mean, the risk of physical violence, of being taken physically advantage of, is not a small thing. And remember, we're living in the days of the judges when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you can't exactly trust the decency and the morality of the fellas that might be hanging around late at night. And so it's a risk to Ruth, even in terms of health and safety, to send her out at nighttime on her own. 
and the plan itself to place herself at the feet of Boaz as he sleeps and basically kind of wake him up in the middle of the night puts her in a very vulnerable situation. She might be discovered by one of Boaz's workers, and this is a very strange thing that's happening. Why is this woman here? Boaz himself might be angered or put off by by this advance, right? So it's a risky move, both for her physical safety and it's a risk in terms of whether this is going to work, right? And the narrator doesn't tell us exactly how to think about Naomi's matchmaking plot. Is this faith taking a risk? Is this impatience sort of taking control, right? Unbelief growing impatient? In that case, we'd be reminded maybe of Sarah and Hagar. All right, Abraham, we've been waiting a while for this promised son. Maybe you should just try it with my, my servant Hagar here. Maybe that's the child that God has in mind to give. So is that what Naomi's doing here? Not sure. The narrator doesn't tell us plainly what to think about it. But it is at best a risky plan. And it is what Naomi says uh, to her. All right, go and do this thing. And Ruth says, all that you say I will do. So once again, Ruth's sort of humble attitude and her uh, spirit of, I want to do whatever I can for the good of my mother-in-law. I don't think she's even thinking of necessarily of, of her own interests. I think she's probably wanting to please Naomi. And so she says, all that you say, I will do. And so she goes. And in verse 6 to 9, she's going to make a bold request. Let's look together at verses 6 through 9. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I'm going to pause right there. It sounds pretty strange to us. Lots of customs here that are quite different than anything we are used to. But it seemed probably a little bit strange to Boaz too, as you can sort of tell, even by the way that the the Bible says it. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Sometimes the Bible is funny in how it expresses its surprise. So the context here is, is the threshing floor. The threshing floor is where harvesters would winnow their crop. So they've gathered all these sheaves of barley or wheat. And there's been both harvests now have been completed. So they gather all their sheaves and they take it to the threshing floor. And they sort of with a big a pitchfork, they toss a clump of it into the air. And the evening wind would blow out the chaff, which is the just the unusable parts of the plant. And so what would fall back to the floor would be the, the usable part of the, the grain that they could use in bread and, and other things. And so they would winnow all of their gleanings this way. Everything that they had harvested, they would toss up and let the chaff blow away. And then they'd gather then all of the grain that had fallen and make a pile, right? But, of course, they do this in the evening because that's when the breeze, that's when the, the, the air uh, would, would blow. And so they do it in the evening. By the time they finish that process, it's getting dark. 
And so they make a pile and then they sleep there. So the, the harvesters would lie next to their pile of grain to protect it until the morning. And then but when the sun came up and the next day began, then they'd gather and put them in bags and store them or whatever and, and do what they would do with them. But so when the night falls, these harvesters would be lying next to their sort of pile of grain that they had winnowed and, uh, and guarding it through the night. So Boaz apparently is at the threshing floor this evening. I'm not sure exactly how Naomi had that information. All right, check it out. I've got a good authority. Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. So go down there at the end of the day of the winning work, and he's going to lie down right next to his pile of grain to protect it until the morning when it would be collected for use. And this is where Ruth stealthily enters the scene. So she's paid attention to where he's working. She's paid attention to where the grain pile that belongs to Boaz is collected, and she watched where he lay down, just as Naomi instructed. And then, under the cover of night, she approaches him and lies down at his feet. Boaz wakes up with a start. Hmm, there's a draft at my feet. Hmm, there's a woman in my bed, right? These are strange occurrences. And when he asks, who are you? Ruth launches straight into her bold request. Look at what she says again in verse 9. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That phrase, spread your wings, can also mean uh, spread the corner of your garment over me. It's a euphemism for marriage in the Old Testament. Uh, maybe the most plain uh, uh, reference is in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, where Yahweh tells Israel, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. So the spreading of the corner of a garment over the people of Israel, in that case, meant that God had entered a covenant relationship with them and had made them his. And so when Ruth is asking Boaz to, to spread the corner of his garment over her, she's essentially asking him to marry her. So this is a very audacious and forward move on her part. She is proposing marriage. And she states that the reason or the, what makes her request valid or reasonable in some sense when she says, for you are a Redeemer. As Naomi has told her, Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. And as such, he may be obligated on the basis of uh, Leverite marriage laws to marry Ruth and provide her a son to be an heir to her widow's name. And so when she says you are a redeemer, she's speaking rightly. He is a relative, a close relative. We're not told exactly what the relationship is. But at any rate... It may be that he has this sort of obligation under the law to provide for Ruth in this particular way. And interestingly, the language that she uses of spreading your wings, where she says, spread your wings over your servant, it evokes the blessing that Boaz himself had pronounced upon Ruth a couple months earlier upon their meeting in the field. Remember when uh, when he came upon her and, and spoke to her the first time, he, Boaz had said to Ruth, a full reward be given you by Yahweh under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth 
is intentionally using Boaz's own words of blessing to her as a way of saying, if you will act as my redeemer and take me as your wife, you will be acting to me, and by extension to Naomi, as the sheltering love of Yahweh himself. Rather than just pronouncing the blessing, may God put you under the shelter of his wings, she's basically saying, would you put me under the shelter of your wings and thus become, in that sense, the the sheltering covenant love of God? Sometimes faith looks like taking bold risks while trusting in sovereign grace. We're not really told what to think of Naomi's plan, per se, but I do think the narrator wants us to, to see what Ruth does and the, way, the manner in which she carries this out as noble and as courageous and as faith-filled. It's easy for us, especially those of us with a high view of God's sovereignty, to kind of get passive and almost fatalistic, right? Well, if it's supposed to happen, if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen, right? Not really anything I could do to change it, so might as well just sort of see how the story unfolds, right? But sometimes the means by which God carries out his sovereign purposes, decreed in eternity past, is through the courageous, faith-fueled actions of his followers. And since we are not omniscient, Right? Our perspective is limited, our understanding is partial, our knowledge of the future is at best unclear. Life must necessarily involve some risks from our perspective because we don't know what's going to happen. And because we know God, we know that he is sovereign and we know that he is good Faith-fueled risks for the glory of God are sometimes exactly what obedience to his will looks like. Now, don't misuse this principle. Please don't go walk out in front of traffic and say, I'm trusting God. But when you come to life's crossroads, when decisions have to be made, when sitting idly by and waiting on the world to change, to use the language of the song a few years ago, is not an option... Make a choice, take a risk, and leave it in the hands of Almighty God. That, I think, is what Ruth does here. She makes this move, she makes her bold request, and she entrusts herself to Boaz, certainly, but ultimately to God to care for her. Well, everything hinges on Boaz's response. What is he going to say? What will he do or say in response to Ruth's bold request and the vulnerable position in which she's now placed herself? So we find out his response in verses 10 through 13. Let's look at those together. And he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then 
as Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So in response to Ruth's audacious request, Boaz offers a generous promise. Several things we notice in Boaz's response to Ruth. First of all, he displays integrity and sexual purity. I think it's worth drawing this out. How easily might Boaz have taken advantage of the situation to take advantage of Ruth? Here's a young woman who's come to his bed, essentially, in the middle of the night and awoken him to propose marriage. She has no social capital. She has nothing to gain or lose. So it would be very easy for Boaz to simply take advantage of her. And yet, he shows remarkable restraint and self-control. He speaks to her respectfully, indeed with admiration, and he makes no physical advance. In moments of temptation, says David Strain, our last defense has to be the pattern of faithful obedience to God that we have consistently accumulated in times when temptation has not assailed us. So that when it does, there is a kind of spiritual muscle memory. And we react not with lust, but with holiness. The last defense of the heart against sin is a pattern and habit of obedience that holds firm when temptation comes. Friends, may we practice daily obedience and restraint, cultivating habits of righteousness, so that, in, so that in the day of temptation, we will have the strength, by God's grace, to withstand the enemy's schemes to derail us. So Boaz acts with integrity and, and purity. Another thing we notice in his response is that he clearly admires Ruth. He thinks highly of Ruth. Now, whether this is a Hollywood kind of romantic, infatuated kind of a love, you know, maybe, maybe not. That's people like to make the sort of like cutesy love story out of Boaz and Ruth. But he clearly thinks very highly of her. Look at a few uh, evidences of that here. He addresses her affectionately twice as, as my daughter, verses 10 and 11. Again, that probably illustrates that there's some age difference here. Boaz is probably an older man than Ruth is by, uh, by probably a generation. So maybe this is an uncle or something of, uh, the, of the husband. I'm not sure. At any rate, uh, but he, he calls her this affectionate term, my daughter. Uh, he praises her for her kindness. He says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. Basically thanking her for pursuing him. Right? You could have gone after younger men, but instead you've, you've come to me. And I think what, he rec- what he's pointing out there is her kindness is not so much that she's been kind to Boaz by letting him have the opportunity, as much as it is she has shown great kindness to Naomi by pursuing the man who might be her source of security and provision because of the Redeemer connection. So I think Boaz is praising the fact that Ruth has yet again showed her devotion and care for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And third, he reports her rep- reputation as a worthy woman. Right? He said, all the townspeople know that you are a worthy woman. Which reminds us that in chapter 2, verse 1, when we were introduced to Boaz, that's the very phrase that was used of him. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, we're told of Boaz. And so a worthy man and a worthy woman indeed. Interestingly, that worthy woman is the exact same Hebrew phrase that's translated in Proverbs 31 as excellent wife. 
an excellent wife who can find could also be a worthy woman. So the Proverbs 31 woman is embodied here by Ruth, the Moabite widow who's come under the wings of Yahweh. So he clearly admires Ruth. Next thing we learn from Boaz's response is a plot twist. Rut-row, there's a nearer redeemer. We've been reading this story. We've been keeping up with the drama. We're going, oh, look, Boaz is a, is, is a relative. Boaz is a redeemer. Oh, look, Ruth found Boaz's field. Oh, look, Boaz has taken notice of her. Oh, look, here they are, and Ruth has proposed marriage to Boaz. Surely the pieces are coming together. And what we get is a little bit of literary dramatic tension because he says, I would redeem you, but there is a relative that's closer to Elimelech. Did Naomi not even know about this relative? Not sure. But Boaz brings to the forefront here that there's someone else that has the sort of right of first refusal according to the laws. He acknowledges that she's right to say that he is a redeemer. He says, it is true that I am a redeemer. However, and the shocking revelation, there is a redeemer nearer than I. And now we start to worry a little bit. Certainly on the kind of personal, emotional level. No, we really want to see Boaz and Ruth get together, right? But more than that, what... What if this other guy claims his prerogative and Ruth has to marry him? What if he's not a worthy man like Boaz is? Plenty of unworthy fellas, worthless men, the Bible sometimes calls them, in this period of the judges. The wheels look like they're coming off here. And finally, he makes a generous promise. So he, he delivers the sort of bad news. Well, there, there, is, there is someone else. And I have to ask him first. But here's what he says. My daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. He says he'll take up the matter first thing in the morning. He's going to find this other relative and give him the opportunity to perform the duties of the kinsman redeemer. And as a contingency, if that guy refuses, he says in verse 13, if he is not willing to redeem you, and then he swears an oath by God's name. As Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. That is a generous promise. As Yahweh lives, I will redeem you. Now here's here's a note. I'm not sure that it's necessary for the text, but it's helpful. From the moment Boaz was introduced to, to us in chapter 2, we can clearly see that his heart is inclined to do good to Ruth and Naomi, to provide shelter and care for these vulnerable women. And if you give me just a minute to help make some biblical connections, I think there's a detail that's easily overlooked, but pretty significant. You may recall the story of a prostitute in Jericho named Rahab. In the book of Joshua, chapter 6, Joshua leads the people of Israel over the Jordan and Jericho is the first city they come to and God is going to give it to them, right? And they're supposed to do this weird march around the city once a day for seven days and seven times on the seventh day and then after the seventh time, blow all these trumpets and the walls are going to come down, right? And the walls came tumbling down. You all know the story of Joshua and Jericho. But there was a prostitute, a pagan prostitute in Jericho named Rahab who gave shelter to the Hebrew spies when they went into the city to sort of scope things out. 
and she helped them escape. And the reason that she helped them escape is because she trusted in Yahweh, in Israel's God. She told the spies, listen, I've heard everything that Yahweh is doing for you, and I want to cast my lot with you guys and not with Jericho. So if you'll remember me with kindness, I will help you and lend aid to the people of Israel. And so those spies promised her, absolutely, as the Lord lives, uh, you and your family will all be spared uh, if you'll do us this kindness. And so sure enough, she does. And sure enough, Rahab finds herself under the shelter of Yahweh's wings as she and her family lived among Israel for the rest of her life. She apparently married an Israelite from the tribe of Judah by the name of Salmon. And do you know who their son was? Boaz. We're told that in chapter 4, verse 21, in that uh, genealogy that, fit, that ends the book of Ruth. Salmon fathered Boaz. And we're told that even more explicitly in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, the genealogy that begins the New Testament, where it says, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz surely grew up hearing the story of how God had graciously taken his mother, a Canaanite, under his wings during the conquest of Jericho as she trusted in Yahweh and gave support to the Israelite spies at great risk to herself. And now, here before him is a vulnerable Canaanite widow seeking refuge under the same wings where his own mother had found shelter so many years ago. And his heart is drawn out to her in love and kindness. What a turn of events. It seems that the poverty and distress of these widows, Naomi and Ruth, that so pervaded the opening chapter of this story may be nearing an end. Their desperate situation begins to give way to a ray of hope, and all because of the incredible grace of a promise. I will redeem you, says Boaz. Promise is at the center of our faith. At the most fundamental level, we are vulnerable and unable to help ourselves. Our well-being, now and for eternity, hinges on the Redeemer's promise to us. And what is the gospel, after all, if not the announcement that sinners who come to Jesus believing that he will keep his promise to save those who trust in him will not be put to shame, but find their need fulfilled by his grace. The grace of a promise. And then in verses 14 to 18, we see that Boaz's life-giving words of promise inspire an expectant hope in Ruth and Naomi. Let's look at the last few verses here. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, apparently to himself, this seems to be a thought, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, now out loud, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest 
but will settle the matter today. So Boaz guards her secrecy, right? All right, let's make sure that this sort of happens and you're out of here before anybody else notices, probably for her protection, probably also for his own reputation. People might get the wrong idea. And he sends her home with six measures of barley. Literally, it's just with six barley. So we don't know exactly what the unit of measurement is there, but it's a decent little amount of barley, apparently. And, uh, and so she goes home to Naomi carrying this barley. And the gift of barley provides a valid reason for her visit to the threshing floor should she encounter any townspeople on her way home. Wait, what are you doing coming from Boaz's threshing floor? Well, I got barley. Oh, okay, he's just getting right. That wouldn't surprise anybody because he's been giving generously to Ruth all along throughout this harvest. And it acts as a guarantee to Ruth and Naomi of his intention to make good on his promise. A kind of down payment for her redemption, if you will. And when Naomi hears Ruth's report of the night's activities and sees the barley gift that Boaz sent back with her, her confidence is bolstered. And not a misplaced confidence, but a confidence in God. You see, I believe Naomi is beginning to hope again in Yahweh's goodness. In chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, she believed God was against her. She said, I'm going by a new name now. Just call me bitter. She said, God has taken everything away from me. I went away full and I've come back empty. In chapter 2, verse 20, she recognized the hand of God in Ruth's encounter with Boaz. And she remembered, oh, he's, he's a relative of ours. Maybe God has not forsaken the living or the dead. And now she is confident that what God set in motion on Ruth's first day in Boaz's field, he will carry to completion in short order. She says, he's going to deal with this today. I just know it. Just wait and see what happens. And so the chapter's final line comes from Naomi's lips. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So the story of this chapter ends with the women waiting in hopeful expectation of Boaz fulfilling his promise. There's a literary tension here since we're not sure if it will be Boaz or the rando redeemer that he mentioned. But he has assured Ruth that the matter will be settled. Boaz has given the women a down payment as a guarantee of his intention to redeem them. And now they must wait for him to come through for them. And they're believing in his promise. In the same way, as believers today, we have received the down payment of our salvation. Ephesians 1.14 tells us that the indwelling Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Romans 6.23 tells us that we, as believers, have been baptized into Christ's death and united with him. We were buried with him by baptism into death, says Paul, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the benefits of salvation that we enjoy here and now, forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are the down payment on our full salvation. And for that full salvation, we still wait. We're still waiting. We await the fully realized redemption that he's promised to fulfill at his return. 
He's made us a promise. I will redeem you. And now we wait expectantly in hope, like Naomi and Ruth. Much of the journey and struggle of the Christian life is clinging stubbornly to faith in that promise. It's reminding our hearts and the hearts of our fellow wayfarers in the church that he's promised to redeem us, and the Lord always makes good on his promises. It's not easy to believe. So we cling to faith, and we encourage and challenge each other to hold on. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ and his atoning death in your place for your sins, his hand is held out to you an invitation. Come unto me, he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the rest Jesus promises to sinners who trust in him is far deeper and longer lasting than the financial security and family legacy that Naomi was longing for and might find in Boaz's promise of redemption. Won't you place your trust in him? If you'll come to him in faith, lay your sins at his feet and receive the forgiveness and grace that flow freely to all who take shelter under his wings, you'll find, as so many before you have, that sometimes a promise changes everything. Let's pray.